years ago, uh, Elizabeth and I and the kids were up in Scotland on a holiday and we were out for a walk. It was a stormy day and we ended up on a beach. And if you've kind of walked on a beach in a storm, you'll know the scene, lots of things being washed up and seaweed and wood and debris and all sorts of bits and bobs. And as we're walking along the beach, I could see something quite big. It looked a little bit like a log, but as we got closer, we saw the log was moving a little bit. And we got closer and closer, we realised that it was an eel, and quite a big eel. And to set the record straight, they're as ugly and as terrifying as you think they are. And it was a big one, wasn't it? And he was still alive, but unfortunately for him, the tide was going out, and uh, he was too far up the beach to rescue himself and to get back in. So he's kind of lying on the side, looking up at me as I'm towering over him. I know what he's thinking. He wants to get back in the water. But obviously he's a big ugly eel. I'm not going to manhandle him. So we found some sticks and fashioned a bit of a channel for the old boy to get back into the sea. And off he went, kind of sliding in. And he reached the water and he was gone. Kind of wriggled off into his freedom. Didn't look back. No kind of stopping and giving me a wave and saying thank you for uh, my part in in his uh, salvation just off into the open ocean. Now then, this week, as we continue to look at the fruits of the Spirit, we will come back to the eel. There is a point in the story. Uh, We are going to see how intimately connected the fruit of the Spirit, which we're going to read again in a minute from Galatians chapter 5, how intimately connected it is to our freedom. We're not eels, and our life isn't an ocean, but we're going to see there's a connection Before we get into the detail of the fruit of the Spirit, we're we're taking a step back. If you were here last week, we were setting the big picture. We were looking at the context of the fruit of the Spirit, the context into which we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And we saw that the context is the kingdom of God. Remember last week, we saw that the big story that we are placed into is a story of two kingdoms, even better than Tolkien's two kingdoms. This is a, a story of a kingdom of darkness, which is being pushed back by a kingdom of light. God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of life and light is pushing back the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. That's what we saw last week. And the context of the the fruit of the spirit, the place where we bear them is in the kingdom of God. And next week, we're going to see the privileged promise it is to be able to bear the fruit. But this week, we are seeing and we're looking at the means by which we bear the fruit of the Spirit. How is it that God's people bear the fruit that he has placed within us? How do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? And this is what we're going to see. That God's people have been freed to bear his fruit as we follow his Spirit. That's the big idea. God's people have been freed to bear his fruit as we follow his Spirit. And as we did last week, we're going to dip a little bit into the Old Testament But our foundation is going to be Galatians chapter 5. So I'm going to read it to us now. Galatians 5, if you haven't got a Bible, there's a few floating around. I'm going to read all of Galatians chapter 5 through to verse 26. So listen as I read and then I'm going to pray for us again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. 
you've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, for only faith working through love. You are running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the law that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. For if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all that we've already confessed as we sung. Thank you again, Father, for who you are. Thank you who you have made us to be. Thank you that we stand here and for those of us who have the eyes of faith, we, we've received that as a gift of grace. There is nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can accomplish. There is no works that we can bring that can get close to providing ourselves a place in your presence. And so we thank you for your son who brings us in. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that these are your words spoken to your people inspired by your spirit. And we thank you that they are for us today, that you desire and determine to teach us. And so we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, help us to see more of who you are. Help us to believe that your word is true, that it is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray by the power of your spirit that you would change us, change us to be more like you, we pray. And we ask this for our good. But Jesus, for your glory. Amen. God's people have been freed to bear his fruit as we follow his spirit. And that is what Galatians 5 is about. That's the big idea that we're going to see this afternoon. And firstly, as we kind of establish that and work it out, the first thing that we see as we think about freedom and think about the freedom that we read in this passage is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus sets his people free. 
When we think about being a people who've been freed, that's what we need to believe first off. That there is no other way that we can walk in true freedom other than the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting as we think about countries like Iran, as Helen just reminded us, as we think of of the, the impingements on their freedoms, that should really remind us and help us to give thanks to God for the freedom that we have. Like we just heard there, we can walk down the street and wear what we want to wear. Women can, can say what they want to say without fear of persecution. We have been gifted in this country both societal and religious freedom. Whereas in countries, countries like Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Christianity is still seen by many in authority as a threat to their security. Sharing the gospel, giving out Bibles, giving out Christian literature, that is seen as an act of propaganda against the state. Planting a church, I think how easily... We've started this church. How easily we've planted Liberty Church. Think of how welcome we are in this community. Whereas in Iran, planting a church could, well, it does, have you end up in prison. Amidst all of the frustration of where our country is at at the moment politically and all of the turmoil that we are seeing unfold amongst us, but then even just the frustration of being Christians in a land where we, we see some tension Let's not forget how free we are. The church, the the Apostle Paul is writing to here, the church in Galatia. See, that's part of their problem. They've forgotten how free they are. They've forgotten that they're free, truly free, free in Christ. So the church in Galatia was planted by the Apostle Paul and Barnabas around 50 AD. And this was a church that was made up of both Jewish converts and Gentile converts. So those who are Jewish by heritage and those who aren't Jewish, Jewish by heritage. And so you have this real melting pot, a church of those from two very different heritages coming together. And the church is only a couple of years old and it's already starting to have some issues. We pick up, as we just read there in chapter five, that false teachers have been coming into the church. They've been visiting and they've been teaching that if you want to be right with God, you need to keep fulfilling the law, the Old Testament law. So if you know your Bible, you know in the Old Testament, God gives his people a law. And these are things that, that they, they have to keep. God's people have to keep. And, and if they want to be right with God, they keep the law. We're going to see in a moment how difficult that is. But these people who are coming into the life of the church, they are saying, yes, take Jesus. Yes, you can say that Jesus is the way to salvation, but don't let go of the law. You still have to keep keeping the law, starting with circumcision. Like if you're not circumcised, this is what the the guys in the church are saying. If you're not circumcised, then that's what you have to do as a priority. If you want to be right with God, yes, hold on to Jesus, but you also need to hold on to the law for your hope for salvation. So Paul writes to them, and can you pick up some of the aggression in his tone? Like, he's upset. He's really angry with these people because it's not right. He says that's simply not true. And so he starts his letter, the first four chapters, in fact, most of the letter, is Paul establishing the teaching of justification by faith alone. Now, don't be scared off by that. Justification by faith alone just means that We are made right with God, not by special religious acts, not by being good people, not by taking communion, not by giving of our tithe, not by doing good things. We are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That is the only way. Nothing else. If you want to have right standing before God, don't come bringing your works. 
You come through faith in Jesus alone. And that is a gift of grace to you. And so Paul spends four chapters building that doctrine, hammering it home so that the people in Galatia can see through the false lies and the deceit of these teachers who are coming in and saying, no, there's another way. Yes, Jesus, but it's Jesus and circumcision or Jesus and keeping all of the law. Jesus, uh, Paul says it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Because Jesus is the only perfect human and he is fully God. Because that is true, it is only his death and his resurrection that is powerful enough to deal with our sin and to make us right with God and to bring us freedom. Freedom is all over this letter. Four times, just in chapter four, uh, chapter five, which we've just read, Paul reminds God's people that we are a freed people. That's who we are. If you're a Christian, you are one who has been freed. You saw right to the top in verse one, for freedom, Christ has set you free. The church in Galatia needed to hear that. Brothers and sisters, you are free. If you are in Christ, you are free. You need to hear that. And we need to hear that. If you are a Christian, hear that. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are freed. You have freedom. But freedom from what? Well, here's the second thing that we see in this chapter. God's people have been freed from slavery to sin and the law. We are a freed people and we have been freed from slavery to sin and the law. And let's be really clear what we mean when we say that we've been freed from the law. Because some people, when Paul was teaching that, some people heard that that Paul was saying, oh, well, we can go and do what we want. If we're freed from from the condemnation of the law, that means we can go and have a sin kind of binge and just do what we want because there's no consequence. That isn't what he means at all. In fact, if you look again at verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, you're free, you've been freed. So don't go back to a life, life of slavery. Your freedom doesn't mean that you go back and do whatever you want and go and kind of live in in that world of slavery again. That isn't what it means. True freedom, we're going to see, is moving away from that. And this theme of slavery, we see it there in verse 1. He talks of a yoke of slavery. This theme of slavery is all over this letter. Four times, uh, sorry, ten times in chapter 4. If you were to go back, you'd see that Paul looks at this idea of slavery. Back in chapter three, he talks about it there. The 10 times in chapter four, Paul is using this idea of slavery to describe what our life was like before our salvation. And he uses words like like slavery, but he also uses the word bondage, captivity, imprisonment. Now for us, as we hear those words, we might think of one or two things. But as Paul writes to a church, a first century church, with with a lot of Jewish heritage within it, as he uses words like bondage, slavery, captivity, imprisonment, their mind goes to a particular story. So less so with us, but but definitely the case in in first uh, century Middle uh, East culture. Their identity was grounded on story. Like we have it a little bit in English culture. But so much so, it was the case in the Middle East in this point in time. Their identity was grounded on story. They would tell stories to one another. You would know who you were based on the stories that had gone in the past. And the backbone of the story of people who had Jewish heritage, and even the Gentile Christians as they came to understand the word of God, the backbone, backbone of their story was the Exodus story. 
We spent the start of this year walking through the story of the Exodus. If you don't know it, the story of the Exodus is a story of God's people being enslaved, being imprisoned, being in bondage, being in captivity under the cruel rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. And God, in his mercy, in the Exodus story, uses Moses to lead his people out of slavery into freedom. And as they come out of Egypt, God leads them out of physical slavery. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up the mountain and receives the law from God. And the law is a moral code which is given to God's people for them to live by. It is a means for them knowing what sin is. The law enables God's people to see what sin is so that they can reject it and they can be right before God. God is shaping his people at Sinai to be the nation that he wanted them to be. Do you remember what it is that God says he wants his nation to be? He says, I want you to be for me a holy nation. And how would they know what it is to be a holy nation? Through the law. The law would show them what sin was so they could reject it and they could become the people that God wanted them to be. But the problem was, none of them could keep it. None of them could keep it. And the law in itself had no power to change them. It just told them what was right and wrong. It couldn't transform them. In fact, it just served over time to remind them of all the ways in which they'd chosen sin instead of God. It reminded them that they were sinful sinners. It reminded them of their failures and guilt. So even though they'd been freed from the physical slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt, they now find themselves in a different kind of prison. Prisoners under the law. And being a prisoner under the law is a dark place to be. And we've all been there, folks. You might even be there now. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your reality now. You are a prisoner under God's law. And you might not see that and kind of and understand that, but you know what that feels like. You know what it feels like to be reminded of your sin and your failure and to have no way out. You know what it is to have your mind plagued with replaying reckless decisions that you've made with no way out. You know what it is to feel that black cloud of darkness, of shame and guilt because of your sin, because of your wrongdoings, and to find no peace. That's what it feels like to be under the law, to be a prisoner under the law. And it cannot change you. The law gives a legal verdict over you which outside a relationship with Jesus is guilty. And it cannot change that verdict. But Jesus can. And he does. In Galatians chapter 4, we read that just like us, Jesus was born under the law, but unlike us, he perfectly kept it. And Jesus' verdict before God wasn't guilty His verdict was righteous, perfectly righteous before God. And in his death, Jesus suffered the penalty for our unrighteousness, for our law breaking. He died on a cross and through the power of his resurrection, his righteousness is given to his people so that now as we come before God, we are marked as those without We are given the righteousness of Christ. So as we come into the presence of God, like this is the beauty of the gospel, folks. We don't come with guilty over us anymore. We come as those who have no guilt. 
It's not even that we're declared not guilty. There's no case to be found. There is no sin in us. There is no unrighteousness in us. We are clothed in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ as we come into the presence of the Father. And we are declared righteous. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God's people are no longer slaves under the law. We are freed. Freed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't the gospel beautiful? Like that should give us so much peace, folks, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to know that that is true, to know that you've been freed from condemnation under the law, to know that you don't have to suffer with the shame and guilt that comes from failure day after day after day, to know that you've been freed from that, liberated from that, you're no longer a prisoner under that. That should give you so much peace and so much joy. That is the beauty of the gospel. But brothers and sisters, that isn't just it. You've been freed from slavery to follow the Spirit. It isn't just that you've been freed. As beautiful as that is, as joyous as that is, you've been freed to follow the Spirit. And I want to just stop here for a minute because this is so fundamental to the Christian life. If you think that the Exodus story is just about God liberating his people from Egypt... If you think that the story of the Bible is just about God freeing his people from sin or freeing them from condemnation under the law. If you think that the Christian life is just like the eel, finding the ocean and then being able to swim off into the freedom that that, that you want. You've missed the point. That is beautiful, folks. To be free from the slavery of your sin and the condemnation of the law. That is beautiful, but God has so much more for you. He has freed you to follow his spirit. That's the third thing that we see here. It's interesting. As the prophets look back at the Exodus story, that is exactly what they saw. So we can look at the Exodus story and think, oh, it was all about breaking free from Egypt. That's what Disney have made their money on, right? It's all about them getting out of Egypt and escaping Pharaoh. But when the prophets look back, as we'll see in a second, they see that actually there is something bigger going on here. If you know the Bible and understand the flow of the Bible, you know after the story of the Exodus that there are kings over Israel. They fail, they're removed and and God's people are sent into exile. And during this period of exile, God brings to his people prophets, people who will speak on his behalf, people who will lead his people through exile. And what the prophets do is they look back to the story behind and they look forward to the promise ahead. And so you'll see as we just look at three of the, the, the verses that three of the prophets bring, you'll see how they look to the story behind and they see the key moment in the Exodus story isn't just that they get freed from slavery, it's that they follow the Spirit. Listen to this from Isaiah 63, it'll come up on the screen. Isaiah says this, um, well, let me fix it because I've got a different version there. Isaiah 63 verses 11 So 14 says this, where is he who brought them up out of his seat? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, who led them through the depths? The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. As Isaiah looks back to the Exodus story, he sees the glory and the splendor of God's people being liberated from their slavery. But he also sees people, God's people being led. 
being led through the wilderness. How is God going to be glorified, he says, as he looks back through God's people, being the people that he has called them to be as they follow his spirit. That's why Isaiah sees. It isn't just about being freed from something. It's about being freed to follow the spirit. Here's the next one, Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 19 to 20. Nehemiah sees this, you and your great mercies, as he looks back at the Exodus story, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. So Nehemiah, as he looks back at the Exodus story, he sees, and if you remember the story, God places in the day a pillar of cloud to lead his people through the wilderness. At night, a pillar of fire to lead them through the wilderness. And God says, that is my presence with you. God's presence is with them. His spirit is with them, leading them through the wilderness. And as Nehemiah looks back, he sees the way that God's people are led, the way that they give glory in, in being the people that he's called them to be, isn't just by walking in the freedom that they have. It is by following the spirit. And here's one last one from Psalm 143, verse 10. This is King David. King David says this, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I think King David is looking back to the Exodus as he writes this psalm. And he sees how God's people have been led. And they are led by his spirit. Each of these writers look back at the Exodus story and this is what they see. God's people are freed to be the people that they've been called to be as they follow, as they walk after the Spirit. The Christian life, folks, is not just about being freed from. It's about walking after the Spirit. And if you go back to Galatians chapter 5, you will see that is exactly the same sermon that Paul preaches Paul is saying exactly the same thing. Christ has set you free. He's set you free from bondage. He has set you free from slavery. He has set you free from being imprisoned. He's released you from slavery. So now look down at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. You've been set free to walk by the Spirit. What does that look like? We're going to see in the coming weeks, it looks like bearing his fruit. It looks like becoming more like Jesus. But before we get there, read the rest of verse 16. Paul says this, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it look like to walk by the Spirit? Well, first, before we even get to bearing the fruit of the Spirit, it looks like not gratifying the desires of the flesh. It means like walking away from the desires of the flesh. And he lists them out for us. Let me just read them again. Verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, sensuality. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. They're the desires of the flesh that Paul lists out. And it's interesting when you see these kind of lists, when you read that list, like quite often our, our mind is drawn towards the spectacular ones. Like we, we see um, sorcery down there and we're like, well, you know, I've not cast any spells recently, so I'm probably all right. 
Maybe this list is for someone else or orgies. Like, it's been a while since, you know, I, I, think, I think I'm okay. Like, there's nothing really in there where I'm like... But then look at verse 19, sexual immorality. Have you had any thoughts this week that counted as being sexually immoral? What about the next one? Impurity. Have you thought or said or done anything this week that is impure? These sins that Paul lists out here, in some shape or form, there's something in there which we are drawn to indulge in at times. And the instruction from Paul is, don't. Don't. And Paul often does this. I love it in verse 21 at the end. What does he say? And things like these. So if it's not on the list, there's another list in Paul's mind, but he runs out of ink. This list that he gives here is intended to paint a picture of the life he used to live. A life in the kingdom of darkness. And Paul is saying, don't go back there. Don't go back there. Don't indulge those things again. Keep away from there. Like think of Israel in the wilderness, right? Think how often God warned them, don't go back to Egypt. Don't mix with foreign gods. Don't worship foreign idols. Think how much they grumbled and complained and mumbled to Moses. We want to go back there. We want to go back to that kingdom. It was so good back there. Think how much they, even at the foot of the mountain, as Moses is up receiving the law, what are they doing? Mixing with foreign gods, going back to the kingdom of darkness. Paul maps out here and pulls out a picture of life in the kingdom of darkness. And he says, don't go back there. Follow the spirit. Walk by the spirit. And back in the Exodus, Israel struggled. They kept looking back. And so do we. Folks, how often are we tempted to go back to that kingdom and indulge in the desires of our own life? Don't. And if you're a Christian, you don't have to. The prophet Ezekiel, this is the last place we'll go to in the Old Testament here this afternoon. The prophet Ezekiel is looking forward to, to our day. To a day when God will save his people and he will place his spirit within us. A time when God's spirit will dwell within us. He looks forward to, to the day of salvation that is today. And this is what he sees as he looks forward. He, he hears a promise from God say this in Ezekiel 36 uh, verses 26 and 27. God says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Like this is so beautiful, folks. Ezekiel looks forward to a day when God's spirit will indwell his people which on its own is glorious, on its own is beautiful, but he doesn't stop there. He says, this is what the Spirit will do. The Spirit of God will cause you, will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Israel struggled in the wilderness. We struggle, folks. But we have a greater help than Old Testament Israel. We have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwelling within us, causing us to walk in obedience. Like he doesn't just sit there, folks. 
He isn't just a resident in our hearts and in our lives. He causes us to walk in obedience. Like how, how amazing is that? He causes us to walk in the way that God has called us to walk. He causes us to obey the rules of God. So if you don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh, then walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to do, brother and sister in Christ. Can we just reject, like wholeheartedly reject that the Holy Spirit is just a character in the Bible? That is not true. Well, it is, but... But he's a, he's a character of a real person. He, he is God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is a person who indwells you if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is a power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you if you are a son or daughter of a living God. So just reject that whole notion that he is an energy or a force or just a character who sits in these pages. He isn't. He's God. And he wants to change you. And he wants to cause you to walk in obedience to the commands of God. What's that going to look like? Well, Kara spoiled it for us about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> but that's all right. Five A's. I was very proud of this, by the way. What does it look like for us to not gratify the desires of the flesh by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, here's five steps for us this week. And the first is this, acknowledge. And acknowledge this. Acknowledge that you are helpless to do anything that is truly pleasing and good apart from God. Acknowledge that. Acknowledge that apart from God, you can do nothing to please him. You can do nothing good apart from God. And folks, when you acknowledge that, that has a devastating effect on your pride. And that is a good place to be. Acknowledge that apart from God, you are helpless. Secondly, ask. God has promised, we saw that in Ezekiel 36, God has promised to put his spirit in his people and to cause us to walk in obedience to his ways. So ask, pray that he would. When you feel tempted, when those, those desires of the flesh come creeping up again, when the old kingdom comes calling, firstly, acknowledge that you have no hope on your own. Secondly, pray. Pray that God would do the work that he has promised to do as his spirit dwells within you. Pray that he would cause you to walk after his spirit and walk away from the desires of the flesh. Thirdly, affirm. Affirm truth. Affirm the truth that sin no longer rules you. Affirm the truth that you are dead in your sin. Affirm the truth that you are alive in Christ. Affirm the truth that Jesus has loosened the chains of slavery. And affirm the truth that he has set you free. Affirm the truth in your head and your heart that Jesus is better. And then number four, abandon. Abandon your sin. Abandon the desires of the flesh. Walk away from them. And note that that comes forth on the list. It is only after we've acknowledged our helplessness without God. It's only after we've asked for him to do the work that he's promised by faith. It's only after that we've affirmed the truth that Jesus is better. It's only then that we walk away from sin. Because if we do that first, we do it in our own strength and we will fail. And then, and we so often forget this, folks. When we walk away from sin, when we walk after the Spirit and walk away from the desires of the flesh, worship. Adore was the best I could get that started with an A. Adore him. Adore Jesus for what he is doing. 
Worship him. Thank him. Thank Jesus that he has helped you overcome temptation. Thank God that you have a love in your life for others. Thank God that you were patient in the traffic jam. Thank God that you are faithful to your wife because those desires don't come from you, they come from Jesus. And so in that moment when he does what you ask him to do, adore him. Worship him. Thank him. If we live by the Spirit... Let us then also walk by the Spirit. Friends, the way to walk by the Spirit is this. To acknowledge honestly that you are unable to please God without the Spirit's work. To ask that the Spirit would do that work. To affirm the truth that you are free from the rule and power of sin. To abandon those sins. And when we do, to adore Christ. To adore him with grateful hearts. To say as we sung before, yet not I, but Christ in me. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that truth now that without you we are helpless. We thank you that right now your people are filled with your spirit. And so we have all the help that we need to walk away from sin and to walk into the ways that you set before us. Thank you that you've put a calling on our lives. That we aren't just called to be free, but we have been called into freedom to follow. Thank you that you've given us your spirit. That we can walk with, lead us into passive righteousness. So now as we take a moment to do that, by the power of your spirit, would you just show in our hearts the things that you want us to leave? The patterns of sin in our lives that you want us to abandon? And would you fill us with faith and help us to believe that Jesus is better? And give us hearts that long after him more than anything else. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.